It's time to talk sports. It's Hacksaw's Headlines. A panorama of the world of sports. Stories, comments, and opinions. Now, here's iconic sports talk show host Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and co-host John Riley. It's a Thursday up and down the West Coast. Who wants to talk sports? We do. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, along with my co-host, the venerable John Riley. We welcome you to our Dixie Line Lumber and Home Center Studios in San Diego. And for the next hour or so, we are going a lot of different directions. John, good afternoon. Big weekend baseball. Lots to talk about college football. We got news and notes. We will jump around the checkerboard all awful lot to talk about. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm There's so many betrays in the last few days, so I'm excited to kind of get caught up on all the MLB news. Our Hacksaw's Headlines podcast, which comes to you on Thursdays and the bonus podcast on Monday, brought to you by Dixie Line Lumber and Home Centers. Fix it, build it, and enjoy it. John, before we get started, explain to everybody on our live stream how the podcast works, what happens at the end of the podcast with what we call Fans Forum, brought to you by Dixie Line, and how we want people to subscribe so they'll know what's going on Monday through Sunday on Hacksaw's Headlines. All right. So, yeah, the, the podcast, it works almost just like uh, the old days with 690. So we go through all of Hacksaw's Headlines, and you can participate. You can essentially call in by dropping your hot take in the live chat on Facebook or YouTube. If you had a question or comment for Hacksaw, just type it in in the live chat, and we'll get you involved in the fans forum at the conclusion of Hacksaw's Headlines. And be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including on YouTube. Like, follow, share, and subscribe on all the social media platforms. And while you're at it, give us a thumbs up. If you feel like it, and you should, because this is good, give us five-star rating, too. And by the way, if you like sports, see that address on the top of the screen? That's my website address on the Internet, LeeHacksawHamilton.com. I write on it every day. You give me five minutes of your time. You read everything I have on my website. Best 15 minutes in sports radio, Hacksaw's headlines, one man's opinion column, the mini polls. You give me five minutes i'll give you the world in sports on we go john let's start with major league baseball where do you want to go well let's talk about our hometown padres because they made some deals they were active at the deadline well when you look at the padres the bottom line is this team added five players via trades they moved four arms they said goodbye to ryan weathers they've made changes let's talk about talk about the names they got it's a half year rental rich hill 19-year career has been everywhere. I think the Padres are the 13th team that he's worn a jersey for. The guy can still pitch. Now, granted, he's a control artist. He's a junk baller. He's not a power guy, but he's a trusted veteran. Uh, His career record is pretty impressive for a guy, quote, hanging on 89 and 69 in his career. 7 and 10 this season, 4.76 ERA for a Pirates team that gave him no support at all. He comes in maybe as a reliable fourth or fifth starter. Maybe he gives you four or five innings, but decent acquisition. They trade for Scott Barlow. This guy was red hot as a closer in Kansas City, had some physical problems, is not having a good statistical year this year, but you put him with a new pitching coach. Maybe they find a flaw. Maybe they get him back to where he was at a 5.35 ERA in Kansas City this year. But prior to that, ERA's in the sub 3.00, so he can bring it. And he becomes a fifth guy out of the pen as the Padres now try to slot 
all these guys in the bullpen, and so far they've been successful in the last week and a half. Iman Choi has been everywhere. Guy can hit with power, as witnessed by the fact he's got 15 home runs this season. Guy plays a pretty decent first base defensively. Guy's only hitting 205. It's a glitch. He'll probably be a platoon guy at first base, but he's reliable, he's trustworthy, and he's been somewhat productive. Garrett Cooper, mystery guy, home run hitter, first baseman, designated hitter, Miami Marlins, Cooper, 271 career batting average, not bad. 52 home runs, a lot of nagging injuries. Got to be able to keep him on the field. But I would think Garrett Cooper and Heman Choi become the platoon guys at first base. Now, I don't know where they bump Jake Cronenworth if they're knocking him off first base, but Cronenworth's not hitting a lick. But Cronenworth has played a really great defensive first base. I think there's got to be positions for Cronenworth to play different places. And then a young guy they got is an interesting guy. His name is Sean Reynolds. He was in the Kansas City farm system. He's six foot eight. He's a converted outfielder. Hmm. Now my I guess there's two ways that I look at Sean Reynolds. Uh two point three six ERA in triple A. He's pitching for Kansas City. Kansas City's got no pitching. Why is he not up at the major league level, or is he not ready to be at the major league level? Got a a 3.50 ERA over the last year and a half, double A into triple A as they converted him from the outfield uh, to the mound. Maybe that's a guy we're going to see before the end of the season. Maybe that's a guy for 2024. So at the end of the day, they yeah, they gave up a bunch of pitchers, and they gave up on Ryan Weathers. Or maybe Ryan Weathers gave up on them. But they kind of just hit the end of the road. But again, to get guys like Garrett Cooper, who's got some proven ability out of Miami, you got to give a guy. And they gave up Ryan Weathers. They kept the crown jewels, the bottom of the farm system at Class A, at Class AA, really good group of players. They didn't trade any of those guys. So I'm pleased. I think they filled in some holes. These guys have got to produce, whether it's a role-playing fourth starter like Rich Hill, whether it's a setup man, whether it's the platoon at first base. Ask if they give them a letter grade. I give them a letter grade of B for what they did to the trade deadline. But the team has got a letter grade of C because they still got to prove what they can do over the final 50-plus games of the season. John, that's my opinion. I'm sure you got some opinions, too. <laughs> I like what A.J. Preller did here. I mean, he wasn't panicking. He you know, filled in some holes. He didn't trade away, the, like you say, the crown jewels. It is interesting. You're saying maybe uh, Choi and, and Garrett Cooper at first base. I wonder if they're going to now not have a permanent DH. Maybe that DH is going to be on a rotating basis because they've been doing that a lot lately. And they've been doing it with the catchers somewhat uh, successfully. Yeah. I mean, both those guys are mashing. Sanchez had two home runs last night. So the, these deals are good. And then, you know, the kid Reynolds, I, I saw a video clip of him in AAA just blowing people away. So, you know, that might be a bit of a lotto ticket for Preller. Down road. Down road. You know, not this year, but, you know, the new guy um, that comes over from Kansas City, guy kind of looks like Josh Hader or Mike Clevenger. You know, got another long, flowing hair guy out there. But he looked good yesterday, too. So, you know, Tim Hill's been a little shaky. Luis Garcia is a disaster. So you got some new pitchers to slot in. I, I think this is a good a good setup for the Padres. Well, they bought insurance policy guys, and they bought some guys with some proven ability. So we'll see where this goes. They didn't stand pat. All right, let's go from the Padres 
to the team that kind of did stand pat and has taken a lot of heat. Yeah, I mean, we thought that they were going to be getting Verlander, and that didn't go that way. All right, let's talk Dodger baseball. Let's talk Andrew Friedman. They were in on Justin Verlander right at the end. They were in on Eduardo Rodriguez of the Detroit Tigers right at the end. They were in on... The St. Louis Cardinal pitcher, Jack Flaherty, right at the end. It did not work out. I think the bottom line, and that, that's a really good headline you have, they refused to overpay. And I kind of I buy that sentiment. Would Verlander have been a difference maker? Hell yes. Would Rodriguez have given him quality starts because he's pitched okay when he's been available and he hasn't always been available in Detroit? Yeah, he would have helped them, but at what price? I don't think, my gut says... They didn't want to take on $43 million next year for Verlander's contract and the option for $35 million the following year mm. that Verlander would have opted into. They didn't want to do that. They turned around and told the Mets, you just paid a ton of money to move Max Scherzer to Texas. You pay us a ton of money and we'll take Verlander off your hands, but you got to pay the price. Mets said no to that deal. The other thing is they wanted Verlander to either remove the 2025 option or change the wording in the option. That would be an L.A. option, not the pitcher's option. Verlander obviously said no. The third piece of this equation, they didn't want to give up half the farm system to get a pitcher north of 40 years of age, even though Verlander is still getting a dud now. That's why that Met-Dodger deal did not work out. The Rodriguez situation is kind of complex. He was a Red Sox left-hander, had success, but there were personality issues. He went to Detroit, had early success. He left them. He's got family issues. He was gone for an extended period of time. It's complicated by the fact he's got an opt-out bonus at the end of this coming season. I was told the Dodgers went back, said, you want to be in a pennant race? We need you to change the language that you can't opt out. His response, I was told, that's not what being said publicly, his response is, you want me to waive my no-trade clause? You got to pay me more money. He's already due $49 million. You know, they're standing under the flag of the union. Union gave us the right to get an opt-out clause. Union gave us a right uh, to have a no trade. You want to change that, what the union gave us? Well, you've got to pay us. Well, now that becomes an issue. And on top of that, L.A., again, are you going to flip top guys in your farm system, a top hot young pitcher for a guy that might be with you two months and then vacates, opts out? It's a big issue. That's why they did not get done. Uh, they did make a trade right at the deadline. Uh, they got Ryan Yarborough, who came from Kansas City. Uh, 2.14 ERA in his last group of starts for the Royals, but prior to that high number. And again, the the burning question to me, much like Barlow in San Diego, is Kansas City's got no freaking pitching. they got 75 losses this season. <laughs> if Yarborough was the real deal, wouldn't Yarborough have been there most of the year rather than just the last three or four starts? So they did get Yarborough. He plugs in at the back of the rotation. The key to me... It's it's an intangible, and I'll be the first one to say it because nobody said it. If they had done Verlander, if they got the changes made and they took on all that money, or if they had done Rodriguez and gotten the language changed and took on all that money, and they'd be vaulting into that next payroll tax area, they might not have money to be able to go get Otani. And I think that's an intangible reason Mm -hmm. as to why they didn't do something August 1st, because on November 1st, 
they want to be able to be a player for Shohei Otani. The other thing is they kept the jewels. They kept Bobby Miller. They kept Emmett Sheehan. They kept Grove, who's really struggled. They kept Pepio, who's been hurt most of the year. They kept Stone. So they kept their top five young pitchers rather than move them for a short rental. They saved money so they could be a player with Otani. I know there's a lot of heat that Andrew Friedman has taken right now, but I think you have to view just not Verlander or Rodriguez. You have to view big picture and Showtime coming back, baseball version with Otani, and them to be a player there. Your response? Yeah, it's all a business, right? Everything's a business. For the player, it's a business. For the general manager and owner, it's a business. So you look at what the Dodgers did, and yeah, I mean, they got all those those young guys coming up, but I still think, I mean, the Dodgers are loaded, right? I mean, they've got a ton of money. they got their own TV network. They could afford Verlander and Otani if they wanted to do it. At what price from the tax? Listen, you're the one that bitched at me about <laughs> April 15th and the amount of tax you had to pay. Yeah. Well, what about the Dodgers? You take all these contracts on, you push yourself into a different galaxy in terms of luxury tax on top of salary. Mm-hmm. I mean, Dodger, yeah, the Dodgers lead baseball in attendance, and the Dodgers are going to crash through four hundred or $4 million again this year. But there has to be a lid somewhere where you, you, it makes no business sense. Just ask Steve Cohen what happened with the New York Mets, his $355 million payroll. He just paid $155 million to move all these contracts off his roster. He's still got to pay the tax. Well, yeah, of course. you got to pay the tax, of, of course. But in the end... This is a loaded franchise that has so many financial assets that, you know, I I haven't seen their books, but my hunch is, is that they could have done it if they wanted to, but they were just more conservative. You know, this, this whole season for the Dodgers has been sort of like, you know, take a step back, kind of look around, think about Otani for next year. But as far as Rodriguez goes, I don't blame him at all for hitting the veto button on the trade because that's his leverage point. And a lot of times they put those no trade deals, not because they don't want to go, but just so they have an opportunity to cha-ching it one more time and get more money. And you can't blame them. Would you rather be in Detroit in last place with no hope because organizationally they've been bad? Or would you rather be in a pennant race at Dodger Stadium with a great Hispanic community of support yeah. that would be your fan? Well, I think if I were in his shoes, I would have called on, the you know, did what he did. Hey, give me a little bit more and I'll waive the no trade. And they should have just negotiated it out. And then he would have been here. Now, apparently his family is in Miami and he's like saying, I want to be near my family or well, Detroit to Miami. I mean, it's no difference in being in L.A. All right. I don't want to hear you bark and bitch about paying your taxes on April 15th. <laughs> yeah. Okay, from that, let's go to Major League Baseball and kind of do a big picture overview of things. Yeah, so, I mean, we're looking at this big board of all these teams, a lot of wheeling and dealing going on. Houston gets Justin Verlander. They relink the relationship between the future Hall of Fame pitcher and owner Jim Crane. They got the Mets to pay $55 million of Verlander's contract. That goes to Houston in addition to Verlander. So Verlander Verlander is locked into the Astros. They desperately need him. They're hanging on, fighting Texas for first place. Half their pitching staff is on the injured list right now. This is a great acquisition. And there's there's past track record history. They like him in Houston. He's pitched well in Houston. The owner believes in him. So that that's probably a win-win deal. And, of course, to get him, they had to give up two of their top outfield prospects. They go to New York, and obviously New York 
is now in kind of rebuild mode. But New York stockpiled. I think the last I counted, New York has picked up 13 young players in all these transactions as they kind of rid themselves of the roster. So Houston gets Verlander. They had to because Texas had gotten Scherzer just prior to that. And the Mets paid $35 million of Scherzer's contract to Texas to make that deal go through. So think about that. The Mets Mets paid 55 to Houston, 35 to the Texas Rangers. In addition, lost in the in the conversation, uh, Texas traded for left-handed pitcher Jordan Montgomery. And that, that guy is a strike thrower with velocity who came from the St. Louis Cardinals. And they had a black hole behind home plate because of a bad injury to Jonathan Heim. They go get Austin Hedges in his glove. And they don't care if Hedges is hitting 181 or 118, <laughs> whatever the number right. is. But uh, I, I think that's a good acquisition. Uh, Baltimore. Uh, they shopped and talked to a lot of people. They got a good guy. If they can keep him healthy, Jack Flaherty. He was once one of the real promising prospects with the St. Louis Cardinals. Has fought back from shoulder injuries a couple of times. But the Orioles just kind of need a veteran guy to go with a really young pitching staff. And the most amazing thing to me, Baltimore's in first place. And they're doing it without the ace of their staff, John Means, who had thrown a no-hitter about a year and a half ago, and he had major surgery, and then he had a setback. They've done all this with almost a raw rookie group of starting pitchers and without the ace of the staff, John Means. So they get Flaherty. He'll give them quality starts. Philadelphia needed pitching because they've been nicked up uh, in that department. They get Michael Lorenzen. It's kind of a weird story. He comes from Detroit. Uh, he had been in Cincinnati. He's a guy that's bounced all over the place, and then suddenly it's like a light bulb went on, and he's he's learned how to become a pitcher. He's had a, a really good statistical season for a bad Detroit Tigers team. And then Tampa Bay, I think, really stole one. And their pitching staff has been shredded by injuries. They got real significant injuries. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we're, as we were going to the All-Star break, we talked about hot young Cy Young Award candidates, and we were talking about Shane McClanahan, uh, the left-hander, who was, at that point was 10-1, and one, mm-hmm. a microscopic ERA. He's had a back injury. Now he's got a forearm injury. So I don't know if, if he's blown his elbow out. He may not be back for a long chunk of the, what's left of the season or maybe even of the postseason. So Tampa Bay goes in, into the market and gets Adam Savale, who last I checked had a 2.34 ERA for Cleveland. They, I mean, obviously they traded minor league prospects to make that deal happen. They traded maybe Cleveland gets the first baseman of the future uh, in that transaction. But those are the ones that I thought really, really did well. Bad ones, I don't know what's going on at Yankee Stadium. Now, granted, they've been ravaged by injuries. And they got so many critical people hurt, but they did not make any significant transactions. I would have thought Boston would have done something because they've kind of picked themselves up after a lousy start. And they're in such a tough division chasing down the guys in the American League East. I thought Seattle would do something. And, and the Mariners, Jerry DePoto has a history of, of making transactions. That didn't happen. And I don't know whether Cincinnati panicked, whether they blinked, or whether they just weren't willing to give up the price tag. The Reds desperately need some veteran front-end starting pitching to go with all their kids and all those kids in the everyday lineup. And they didn't do a thing, which kind of really blew me away. So, Wheeler's Dealers, John, your response to what Houston did in response to what Texas did. Yeah, so I think those are the two big deals that went. I mean, those two pitchers, Scherzer and Verlander. The rest of them, you know, they're kind of guys. Some are good, some are journeymen, some fill in some holes. But this wasn't as an electric of a trade deadline day as I had thought. Because I think a lot of teams feel like they're still in it. That's why everyone's in buy mode. But 
darn it, the, the Astros and their cheaters, and they're getting Verlander back. They get Kate Upton with them, package deal. I mean, Verlander is just the king of the world these days. He's making huge money. You know, he's got a supermodel for a wife, and he's back with the boys in Houston, you know, and he's got that familiarity with Maldonado. So that's a sweet spot for him to land. But I don't want the Astros to be successful. Yeah, I'll be fascinated to see Corey Seager is now back. And he was hitting 350 before he went down. He is now back. And we'll see if Texas starts to stroke it. But obviously getting Scherzer helps them a great deal. Hey, our Hacksaw's Headlines podcast is brought to you by Dixie Line Lumber and Home Centers. Fix it, build it, and enjoy it. And here's a special message. Get summer projects done. Get savings at Dixie Line Lumber and Home Centers. Power tools, paints, doors, windows, decking, outdoor lighting, patio furniture, and a lot more. Check out the great monthly promotions at DixieLine.com. Dixie Line, as we say, fix it, build it, enjoy it, as we salute Dixie Line. And as we come out of Dixie Line at halftime, John, one other baseball note, because this is huge. We're talking about Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, the Dodgers, the Padres. Somebody, I think, is going to be in trouble by the time we get to Monday night, and This is a huge four-game series. It's a crossroads series, as I view it. We're talking about the Padres clawing their way back into the wildcard race. We're talking about the Dodgers trying to gain separation from the rest of the people in the National League West. Let me throw some numbers at you. Nice headline. Is it a rivalry? Ye of no faith whatsoever. (laughs) In the history of the Dodgers versus the Padres dating to 1969, Dodgers record against San Diego, 514 wins, 416 losses. That's nearly a 100-game difference. Since 2020, the Padres are 20-38 and 38 against the Dodgers. In the regular season since 2020, the COVID years when I started counting, the Padres are 17-37 and 37 in the regular season against L.A. In the series... They have played 17 series since the COVID year. Padres have won two series. The Dodgers have won 14. And there's been one series that has been an even-steven split. And by the way, since you're the wise-ass that asked this, the May incident, Clayton Kershaw, the video board, crying, the cartoon, and all that. The meme. Since the Padres did that, Padres are 30 and 46. Brutal. And, you know, and as bad as those numbers are, I'm surprised they're not worse. I mean, it's just <laughs> been a rough go. Now, the Padres are in a prove-it kind of a four-game series here. With a loaded roster and a Dodger pitching staff that's kind of got its arm hanging off the side. Yeah, and they're going to pitch Lance Lynn, so we hopefully we'll get some big meatballs to hit. But, you know, they, they went and swept the Rangers. They should have swept the Rockies. They're 1-5 of 6. Okay, now let's prove it. It's going to start tomorrow night. Big boy baseball starting on Friday. All right, so you're listening to us on the live stream. You're watching us on the live stream. If you're a baseball fan on the live stream, we want you to join us fans forum. 
your response to what the Padres did. If you're a Dodger fan, your thoughts about them holding on to all their prospects. If you're an Angel fan, we'll talk about how bad it is. You notice I didn't mention anything <laughs> about Lucas Giolito giving up nine runs in three innings in his maiden start oh. for the Halos against a really good Atlanta Braves. If you're a baseball fan, jump on board and, hey, I'm not going to insult anybody, but you just tell us on fans form at the end, is this really a rivalry, the Dodgers versus the Padres, based on the statistics I just gave you. Okay, on we go. Let's talk NFL football because the preseason starts tonight, Thursday night, and what a great weekend at Fawcett Stadium in Canton. Yeah, so it's the Hall of Fame game, right? So we got, And we're going to have some um, inductions here for the class of 2023. Well, Thursday night football will be the New York Jets' Aaron Rodgers, Cleveland Browns, Deshaun Watson, though I don't think either of the quarterbacks are going to play in the Thursday night game. We got the Gold Jacket dinner on Friday night in Canton, then the enshrinement ceremonies, which are really cool. Let's just kind of walk through those to be enshrined. He was the architect of San Diego Charger football. He was a creative genius. His favorite word, matchups. My favorite word, mismatches. <laughs> what Don Coriel did to stockpile talent, his, what he did to develop Dan Fouts into a Hall of Fame quarterback, what he did when he cited and he signed and they drafted people like Kellen Winslow and Charlie Joyner and Wes Chandler and J.J. John Jefferson and what they did to handle and tolerate Chuck Muncie and the, the unique piece that was James Brooks. Couldn't play a look at defense, but obviously played a lot of offense. Don Coriel, after all these years, gets into the Hall of Fame. I can't wait for the Saturday ceremony because Dan Fouts will be his, his presenter. Tremendous honor. Obviously did not get in for a long time while he was alive because he never got to the playoff championship game. He never got to the Super Bowl. But he was just a creative genius. There's so many other good names. It's not a sexy position left tackle, but pal, you better have a left tackle to protect that quarterback if you got a quarterback. Joe Thomas came from Wisconsin, put the helmet on, and never took the helmet off and never came out of the lineup. Think about this, Mr. Riley. 11-year starter. He played every game for 11 straight years at left tackle, never came out of the lineup. Joe Thomas took 10,363 snaps in a row and then retired. Amazing. Retired with his health. Think about that when you consider the fatality rate around the NFL. So Joe Thomas, legendary Browns left tackle, goes into the hall. This is one of my favorite linebackers of all time. Obviously not the same as 55, Junior Seau. Zach Thomas, what a made man. Undersized linebacker at 5'10 and a half, Texas Tech. He went to Miami, and he played for Shula, and you could not get him off the field. He was a run-stuffer. He was really good in coverage. Smart guy. 13 years in the NFL as an undersized middle linebacker, and he could run. Now, not he wasn't the explosive, powerful guy that Seau was, but he was just an intellect, and he knew the angles, and he knew playbooks, and he was. I thought he was phenomenal. Another non-sexy guy. Played a defensive tackle forever for the New York Jets, Joe Klecko. He was part of the group that was led by that loudmouth Mark Gastineau. Mm. He was kind of the inside guy to what Gastineau was outside for the then New York 
sack exchange, which was a really fierce pass rush. So he goes in. DeMarcus Ware, was he linebacker? Was he defensive end? Was he paid the way he should have been paid? We do know this. Ex-Dallas Cowboy goes in. 135 career sacks. Really impressive numbers for DeMarcus Ware. Darrell Rivas was really controversial. He probably goes in as a New York Jet. He played 11 years, had a bunch of injuries at the end. Kind of controversial because he talked his way out of a bunch of different places. He kept getting traded. But at the end of the day, Rivas Island, and that's what they called the territories, like the Crone Zone, <laughs> they called it Rivas Island. After 11 years, he had 29 interceptions and was a real great single one-on-one coverage guy. Rondé Barber, I think, is one of the most unsung guys that Tony Dungy ever drafted. He played 16 years in the league. Tampa Bay, uh, 47 interceptions, and he took eight scores back for touchdowns. So led by Coriel, this is a marquee group. There are a couple of other, the old-timers, Chuck Howley, legendary, way back in the day, Dallas Cowboy linebacker, Ken Riley, great safety, great college football coach at the Black School, Florida A&M. Those guys will be enshrined too. But Eric Coriel, this is so cool, considering what he did to contribute to the league, even though he didn't get there, get there being a Super Bowl. Yeah, I think his Charger fans were happy to see him finally make it. And, you know, his his legacy and his coaching tree is just a remarkable list of guys that are on there. But, you know, the, the name I, I saw on the list that kind of caught my attention was DeMarcus Ware, because I, if I recall, wasn't he in the same draft with Sean Merriman? Yep. And then the Chargers got Merriman, the Cowboys got Ware, and like who was the better linebacker? And for a while, Charger fans thought they had the guy. Lights out, Sean Merriman. And then that whole thing just blew up. Well, he got hurt. He had a knee injury, and he never was ever the same again. Ware had back problems at the end, but Ware stayed healthy. And Ware was really a multi-position guy. Ware is kind of a Joey Bosa. Hmm. Down lineman coming to get your quarterback, drop back linebacker coming off the edge as a blitz guy. Where was a, a, a multi-position guy? But the difference was lights out, got hurt fairly mm-hmm. early and then just evaporated. And where stayed healthy for a large chunk of his career, 135 sacks. That's a lot of productivity. It is. And, and what about Rondé Barber? His, he has a brother, Tiki, right? Yep. Is he in the Hall of Fame? No. Not yet. But, but he's doing TV work and different position. Ronde, Ronde was part of a really collective group that Dungy and those people drafted in Tampa. Mm-hmm. And they've got a lot of really good players. If you Google, just go back a group of years and just look at the roster or, or the depth chart, of the guys who are in Tampa Bay during the Dungy era, what a collection of really good players. And Ronde... Rondy's not a household name, but geez, you look at all the interceptions and 16 years of playing in the war. That's pretty impressive. So on we go. Hall of Fame ceremonies. Can't wait to hear what Dan Fouts has to say, though I tend to think I know what Dan (laughs) Fouts is going to have to say. I'll just give you a 30-second story. I asked Dan Fouts as he was retiring, um, and I got to go to that press conference. It was after the first year I'd come here as a voice of the Chargers, and the team had gone gone old and the team had a lot of injuries and they, were, they had to go into transition and Dan got hurt and so he never played right at the end of the season. I said what was it like to be around Coriel? He said, Hacksaw, we would go on Tuesday we the school guys for the meeting and they would give us the playbook for the next opponent and we'd sit there and we'd look at that playbook and we'd look at each other and we'd wink and say we're going to kick their ass and you couldn't, you couldn't cover everything they had 
because of Eric Coriel and, keyword mismatches. Mm. And I'll tell you one other 30-second story. When I was in Cleveland, before I came to the West Coast, I, I worked on the Browns Network, and we had a really good Browns team in the early 1980s, led by Brian Seif, oh, the yeah. former Aztec. And there were some really good players on that team. And we thought, we're a legitimate AFC championship game team. We hosted the Chargers on opening night. It might have been 80, 1980, maybe, or maybe it was 81. It was right after the Ice Bowl. We played them in Cleveland Municipal Stadium, 82,000 people wearing orange. This before the dog pound. And I'm on the sidelines, and I thought, this is going to be a great game. And Dan Fouts came out throwing, and hmm. they buried the Browns. It was like 42-14. I'd never, ever seen anything like that. And this was a really good Browns team. I thought, uh-oh, these guys are amazing. And they were amazing, at least on the offensive side of the football. So I'm, I'm so pleased for, for Dan uh, Don Coriel. He did so much in college football, uh, especially at San Diego State. But that, that was 50 years ago. It was a very different era. What he did with the St. Louis NFL Cardinals with Jim Hart was really impressive. And then he comes here. And he says, I like that quarterback. I like 14, and I can make 14 a great quarterback. And then they went out with the player personnel people. I think the GM at the time was Johnny Sanders. And they went out, and they got access to all these school guys, the deep threats, the route runners, the massive tight end, two or three deep at running back. You you, you needed Canadian Football League rules. You needed 12 on the field <laughs> to defend everything Fouts had when he walked to the line of scrimmage. And then Fouts had ice water in his veins. He was going to stand in there, and he was going to make those passes. If he took a shot in the mouth, he took a shot in the mouth. But by the way, it's first down. Let's get another first set of downs going in for another score. I mean, it was it was an amazing offense, and that's that's because of mismatches, and that's who Coriel was, and he was he was weird to deal with. I didn't deal with him as a play by play voice of the Chargers because he was gone by the time I got there. But he was so psychotic about Al Davis. And as there a plane <laughs> flying overhead, stop practice. What's that plane? Well, it's an American Airlines plane taking off from the airport. And they had people near the stadium go up on the hillsides and the mountains, make sure there was nobody with binoculars. He really? just so freaked out about Al Davis. But then they, they kicked the Raiders' ass along the way. So I'm so pleased for Eric Coriel for what he meant to the National Football League from a creative juice standpoint. Yeah, it's a great moment, you know, for San Diego Charger fans. But let me ask you, Lee, do you think it's fair that, that they hold guys back, whether they're a player or a coach, from the Hall of Fame and say, well, you know, you never won the big one. You've never won a Super Bowl, a World Series, an NBA championship. I mean, Dan Marino never won a Super Bowl, but everyone thought for sure he was a Hall of Famer. It seems like it's a double standard. Well, I think you have to base it a little bit on statistics. Obviously, you base it on the finish line. Did they get there? Did they get it accomplished? But there's also the creative aspect of who they were and what they accomplished. I mean, Dan Marino changed the NFL with a quick passing attack and the Marx Brothers mm. at wide receiver. And and there's no doubt that some of these other coaches, I mean, Mike Shanahan, Mike Shanahan the ex-Raider Redskin Bronco coach, is the next man up who Won Super Bowls, you know, and Tom Coughlin, uh, who's got multiple Super Bowl uh, rings. And, you know, Marty Schottenheimer, you don't win over 200 games in the NFL unless you're great. Now, his postseason record was really substandard, but Marty Ball stood for a lot of things to allow him. He won 200 games right on the nose over the course of his career. So 
And and again, there's always a new wave of guys that are coming eligible the following year that kind of make it a traffic jam as to who you let in. The one neat thing is the league has now devised these different categories where we do have the contributor. And Coriel, I think, is getting in for what he did with X's and O's and what he did with mismatches. And that's why he's in. He's not getting in for his NFL record of 124 wins or the fact he had no Super Bowl appearances as a contributor. He did an awful lot. So that's where we are. A huge, huge weekend in the NFL. Now, we got college football to talk about, too. Yeah, so the the Pac-12 deal seems like every day there's some new piece of information. Yeah, this is the latest. Uh, There's a whole bunch of things that have happened in the last 12 hours. I'll just try to run through it. Apple TV has evidently made a significant bid at the last minutes of the Pac-12 to come in to be their primary streamer. The problem is it's based on subscriptions. The second problem is they're evidently only offering about $25 million per school, but there's bonus clauses that would be there. If the subscription rates rocket, the Apple TV money would move off $25 million and would increase as we go. Now, the question is, is a Pac-12 going to give the bulk of the marquee games to Apple TV, or is the Pac-12, which suddenly was contacted by TNT and TBS, going to take part of that and mm-hmm. give that to them? Where does this whole thing with Comcast fit in? Where does this thing with CW, which is still out there? Is Disney still a player? So a lot of moving parts at this point, but that's the latest Apple TV has shown up with a very creatively financed deal. It's not going to be equal to the $50 million that the Big Ten is getting. It's surely not what the SEC is distributing or the $37 mil right now that the Big 12 is offering. That's one storyline. The second storyline is not good. Yahoo Sports reported overnight that the commissioner of the Big Ten has made secret contacts to put together a four-team package if the Pac-12 dissolves. The Big Ten is now willing to go to 20 teams. They would take Oregon. They would take Washington, the standard bearers. They would take Cal and Stanford because of their academic heritage. That's out there. Another piece of the equation, I was told, Oregon does not want to make any decision that would kill the conference. They don't want to be stained forever as the one that took the conference down. And Washington is kind of of the same note. Mm. We don't want to be blamed for the disintegration. Everybody's waiting to see whatever this final TV deal is going to be. If those four leave, that means the corner schools, Arizona, Arizona State, and Utah, obviously would go to the Big 12. Big 12 would respond to what the Big 10 has done. And the Pac-12, as we know it, would be done. What's left? Oregon State Beavers, Washington State Cougars, I'm led to believe. There have been overtures by the Mountain West. If this happens, if this thing dissolves, we will offer you to come, which would obviously elevate the value of the TV contract the Mountain West has. Mm -hmm. So there might be a little bit more money for San Diego State. At this point, it all spins on the Apple TV bid. But all of a sudden, there's all these other dominoes that could start to fall along the line. That's an awful lot of information, but that's, that's the update I got from guys that I deal with in the Pac-12, the Big 12, and obviously what has now been reported by Yahoo. Initially, it was supposed to be two schools. All of a sudden, it's like a four-pack. Yeah, so I've heard those rumors about Oregon and Washington, but not Cal and Stanford. So that's news to me. 
it's just everything is just so chaotic right now with the TV deals and the conference realignment and the mergers and everything else. Um, but it is cool to see Apple. You know, I mean, they did that deal with Messi. You know, they're getting creative. They're they're trying new things. So this whole streaming world is just changing the landscape of how these these programs are broadcasted. So I think there's a little bit of, you know, we're just trying to feel it out, you know, and these guys are committing to long-term deals and it's hard to predict what the revenue model is going to be in the streaming world. But the world, I guess the question I'll pose, because you subscribe to stuff, I subscribe to stuff, but you can't subscribe to everything. The question I have is, can you live in a world where all your marquee games are strictly on streaming subscription on Apple TV? Or do you need a component because you and I will be able to punch up Big 12 games and Big 10 games will be on my TV on Saturday afternoon. Do you need a, what do they call it, linear TV partner? Now, does the, does the Pac-12 come back and tell Apple, we like your ideas of the bid? We'll give you a marquee Friday night college game. And that Friday night game could be Oregon, Washington. It could be anybody. We'll make sure with the scheduling package at Apple TV on a Friday night package gets a marquee game because that's an open window that nobody has filled right now. But, but you know, do you want to ignore linear TV? You know, you got Oregon, you got Washington, you got the Beavers, you got the Cougars. Um, but everyone's cutting the cord now, you well, know. So, I mean, no one has the, the rabbit ears with the tinfoil anymore. And the cable thing is is dissolving rapidly. That's why Bally Sports imploded. So everything is just radically changing here. Now, for me as a consumer, I'm used to having multiple streaming platforms. And if we can a la carte it, you know, where you just maybe have the Big Ten Network or the Pac-12 Network – you know, then it might actually be less than a $200 cable bill. So, you know, I, I, the, the world is changing radically and it's just hard to see how this goes. But we're getting to the point now where we don't need to always depend on Keith Jackson on ABC. You know, it, it's a different space. But the other conferences will have their games on normal network TV and the Pac-12 is going to disappear completely and just go on Apple and you better subscribe and your wife's going to beef if you say you're going to cancel your cable and that's no Turner Classic Movies or no <laughs> CNN, she won't be real happy so you can buy Apple TV. It, it bears watching. I, I guess I'll pose on the fans forum, I'll throw this question at the people on the live stream. Oregon, Washington, if you were them, if you were the Ducks, if you were the Huskies, would you leave and will it lead to the demise of the Pac-12? So we got that. One other college football story. This is really messy, and this is the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I mean, I saw the headline here. This is not good. Well, we've been talking about the NFL and the suspension of players. And and now, the last I counted, I think there are now eight NFL players that have been suspended for anywhere from six games, like Jameson Williams, the number one pick of Detroit, to maybe the rest of the career for a couple of others. The investigation has spread. It has now been confirmed Iowa State's quarterback and their star defensive end both bet on Cyclone games over the last couple of years. Mm. And we're not talking about an odd $10 bet. Uh, it's, it's really bad. Iowa State quarterback Hunter Deckers paced, placed last year 366 bets, about $3,000 total with DraftKings, included bets on his Iowa State team that was playing Saturday by Saturday, 366 bets. Defensive end, Enzu Uwazikri, 
placed 802 bets, lost $21,000. He was betting on everything. He did it with FanDuel. So here we are, college athletics, having corporate sponsorship with DraftKings and FanDuel. The NFL had the same thing, too. And all of a sudden, we find these players are placing, in one case, 802 bets during the football season. That's that's an addiction. And by the way, that defensive end has been expelled from the NFL because he was betting on NFL teams and betting on his team in games last season in Denver. This is ugly, and this is only the tip of the iceberg because we're led to believe that these guys had pals that played at Iowa with the Hawkeyes. Those guys were betting, and I, I swear, if it's happening in Ames, Iowa, and it's happening in Iowa City, it's happening a bunch of other places too, regardless of whether these players bet huge amounts of money or small amounts of money, whether they knew the rules and ignored the rules or are just ignorant of the rules. It's tip of the iceberg. To me, it's real bad stuff. Yeah. I mean, they've got to take aggressive action here because you don't want the sport to look like it's rigged. You want the sport to be pure. Um, but it's amazing these college kids get this kind of money. I mean, $21,000. Maybe they're getting a lot of NIL deals on this. But uh, this is this is really sad. Um, they need to, yeah, I think that they need to just jettison these guys and take a very hardcore approach. Well, I, I think obviously... The hammer's going to be dropped, but I think this is the problem. This this Iowa State thing has just exploded. And if it's at Iowa State, trust me, it's a lot of other places. But it's a mixed message, isn't it, Lee? Like, they, again, they're sponsoring them, and yet at the same time, they don't want them to bet. So they're in a tough spot the ethically. Rules or the rules, John. Yeah. Should be some common sense here. Well, for sure. Exactly. Hey, Hacksaw's headlines are brought to you by Dixon Line Lumber and Home Centers. Fix it. Build it. Enjoy it. John, before we move on to the other topics on the table, and we're going to bust through some of these other things fairly quickly. Just remind everybody about Fans Forum. Remind everybody about subscribing to what we're doing. Okay, so yeah, you can get involved in Fans Forum. I see a lot of guys here. Some of the regulars, Angel, Emmanuel, Manny, Kenny, Mike, Chris, bunch of guys here loading up so you got there's tracy and brett and greg and john so if you got questions or comments for hacksaw get them in right now in the live chat on facebook or youtube we'll try to squeeze you all in and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts including on youtube and again reminder check my website leehacksawhamilton.com it's on the internet. It's free. I write on it every day of the week. If you can, give us a thumbs up. If you can, give us five stars rating. Because in apologies in advance, we think we're bleeping brilliant here. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Uh, topic, hockey. Hockey. I mean, so, you know, we just had the draft, and there's a lot going on as the season gets started in a few months. Well, the Anaheim Ducks are trying to fix their franchise, have taken a step forward with what they've drafted. Now, a big contract, but a big injury. And this is this is tough news. Troy Terry, former San Diego Gull, has really evolved into a really good hockey player. He became arbitration eligible. He asked for a massive pay raise from about $3 million to 8 And the Ducks said no. But they avoided arbitration because they creatively came up with a new deal for Troy Terry, which will be seven years, $49 million. That's a $7 million average. That's pretty good for a guy that's had three decent seasons. He scored 23 goals this past season. Now he's locked up. And the Ducks, by the way they've done this creative financing, even though it's a $7 million average, the back end of it has the bigger dollar value. Uh, they still have probably 10 more million cap space to still go out and get more players. 
Bad news, they lost one other center iceman, kid that played here for a year and a half out of Sweden, Isaac Lundestrom. He has suffered a ruptured Achilles. Off-season training in Sweden just underwent surgery. Mm. He's gone at least six months. And so now, now all of a sudden, it's important whom they drafted. They drafted the Swedish player, Leo Carlson, big 6'3", 19-year-old. He can play center. He can play left wing. He's probably going to be playing opening night for the Anaheim Ducks, and maybe he replaces Lundestrom. So Ducks, a lot of moving parts, and of course, obviously, what they do impacts what happens down here with the San Diego Gulls, but locking Terry down to a, a contract that will be back-end loaded is huge. Terrible loss of the Swedish center Iceman who'd been there two-plus years in Anaheim, but now... Now the drafting of the kid, Leo Carlson, is huge. Yeah, so when does the NHL season start? It's like in early October, right? Yeah, and everybody goes to training camp in September. There will be rookie tournaments. Uh, the Ducks, the Kings, Arizona Coyotes, Colorado Avalanche, they play in a round-robin tournament uh, in late September. Then there's some exhibition games, and then the season starts maybe the second week of October. So that's a big story there with the Ducks. From that, we move on to what's going to happen Sunday. Yeah, so Team USA squeaked in to, to knock out play. Now we're going to see what, how they're going to do. A lot of controversy. Team USA is going to the knockout round, but this won't be easy. There's huge debate. Team chemistry, team fire, team desire, team offense, misuse or use of the team bench. Vlatko Andonovsky is under enormous fire as head coach. We have talked extensively about Alex Morgan. We've talked about Megan Rapino. The question is, how are you using your young players? Now, I think some of the criticism really unfair because I've watched every minute of Team USA's women's play in the three games. But they've only scored four goals in the three games. They had a win and they had two ties. But they had tons of opportunities, which meant that's just players putting the ball in the net when they've had the chance to score. It has not happened yet. But there's an awful lot of young people trying to make plays under pressure that are either having the shots blocked or hitting the post or the crossbar or just misfiring. Uh, they're they're going to try to do something a little bit different at midfield. They're talking about moving Julie Ertz, who's one of the few veterans, into midfield. They really do miss one of their fullbacks, one of the defenders on the back end, Becky Sauerbrunn. She, she's out and not going to play in this tournament. And now they've they got another problem. One of their really feisty players, her name is Rose Lavelle, suspended. Back-to-back yellow cards. Right. Can't play against Sweden. And she was really making things happen in and around the top of the box, but she is out. They've got to find goals from Lindsay Horan, Sophie Smith, obviously Morgan, Trinity Rodman. Uh, They had, in the the weird game with Panama, they had six legitimate scoring chances in and around the box, in and around the net. A couple of shots were blocked. One hit the post, one was over the post, one the goaltender made a huge... So it's not like they're in, unable to penetrate and get shots on goal. They just haven't been able to put them in. Sweden, holy cow. Sweden sweeps through its group play, where Team USA scored four goals in three games. Sweden outscored the opposition 10-1. to one. Whoa. So... This is going to be fascinating to see. Team USA plays its first game. Hopefully not the only game, but it won't be easy. But 
Team USA will play Sweden come Sunday. It's going to be fun to watch. So that's going to be Sunday at like 2 a.m., right? Yes. So crazy time there. Um, yeah, that game was so frustrating to watch when they when they uh, went up against, who was it, the last Portugal. game? Portugal. Portugal, that's what it was. And uh, But yeah, I want to talk about streaming here for a minute, This because we've been talking about with the Pac-12. I subscribe to DirecTV Stream because I know I get the Padre games through that. And I have access to Fox through that. But when I click on Fox through DirecTV, there's some sort of like a licensing conflict and I can't see the game. So I was having to watch it on Telemundo, you know, in Espanol. And then for a while I was I thought, oh, yeah, maybe I can like just go on the Fox Sports app. And I did that. But I only had a trial period for about 30 minutes. And then that expired. You're subscribing <laughs> to everything in the world, John. Yeah, you're right. And, and so it drives my wife nuts because we have so many different subscriptions to so many different things. Um, I'm just hoping a lot of this eases out. But it's just frustrating, too, when you subscribe to a multi-channel platform like DirecTV thinking you're getting Fox Sports, and then you go to click on the game and they say, oh, sorry, we're having a contract dispute. It's called layers of subscription. Yes. That's yeah. where we are. But I'm, I'm looking forward to the match. You know, I'm all in on here on Team USA. I think Sophia Smith is just a fabulous player to watch her move that ball around. So let's see what happens. I mean, Sweden will be tough. If I invited you at 2 a.m. to come to my house, I'd let you in the front door if you brought sub sandwiches and Mountain Dew. <laughs> yeah. We'd watch Team USA. We'll be jacked up on sugar and caffeine. Uh, versus Sweden. Okay, from soccer, let's go to golf. Golf. Yeah, Tiger and Phil, back in the news. Yeah, this is really interesting. The PGA Tour is headed towards the Ryder Cup a week from now. Uh, big storylines involving Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson. Tiger Woods has been voted onto the PGA Tour policy board. This is important because of part of the merger with LIV, if it ever gets approved. The PGA is the one that's going to have controlling decision-making power on everything golf-related between the ropes. Tournaments here, tournaments in Europe, the creative stuff they might want to do, South Africa, the Pacific Ring, etc. Tour Policy Board makes those decisions. Tiger gets voted on the Tour Policy Board in place of a gentleman, an old retired gentleman. It gives the players the majority. There are now six players on the Tour Policy Board. So Tiger and the guys on that board will influence the decision. It won't be, quote, non-PGA golfers that will be making that decision. So that's a huge step forward because mm -hmm. there had been an awful lot of barking that when this story leaked out, you made this deal, Jay Monahan, without any player input? What the hell is the Tour <laughs> Policy Board there for? Right. Well, now it's there, and Tiger is going to be the spokesman. Tiger is going to be the emotional leader, and there will be six players on the board that gives them the majority. Then the LIV is playing here in West Virginia, mm. of all places, at Greenbrier. I mean, there might be 12 people that show up. It's only 12 <laughs> people that live in that county. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, Phil Mickelson stood up at the press briefing on Wednesday before they got ready to play the first round at the end of the week in West Virginia. And he is of the opinion LIV, LIV players don't want to come back and play on the tour. What? I mean, nobody's, nobody's praised this, quote, merger. And then Phil said, and by the way, I don't think I should be fined. I don't think I owe anybody an apology for what I did. And I don't think there should be an entrance fee for the guys who played in the Saudi League to come back and play on the PGA Tour. Phil 
opens mouth, inserts foot. <laughs> Why would you say this in public? You yeah. do it behind closed doors as they, quote, negotiate whether there's a reinstatement fee or whether there's a fine. So, I mean, Phil just explodes with more stuff out of his mouth. Yeah, I mean, that's nuts. I mean, he he rejected the PGA, broke up with them to sign with a competitor. He violated his PGA tour card. Yeah. So, you know, on many levels, I mean, that is a huge diss to the PGA. And so, yeah, when Phil comes back, he's going to have to come back with his tail between his legs. He can't expect to be returning to Phil Mickelson glory on the PGA. So that was dumb. But I like seeing Tiger Woods in a leadership position. I mean, you know, his, his career as a golfer he only has a little bit left in the tank, but he's still involved in PGA. He's still trying to make it a better sport and trying to make it a player's league. And I like that. Yeah, I still maintain I'd love to see Tiger on my TV as an analyst rather than Tiger limping up and down the fairway unable to play or make shots, maybe that that's still to come. But uh, And, you know, my critique, I had such great regard for Lefty. He became the fan's man oh, for sure. over the course of his career. But, boy, the way he's acted and the business things that he's gotten himself involved in <laughs> at the tail end of his career. Don't go there, Phil. I mean, he's in obviously in the sunset of an illustrious career. I'm embarrassed that he's playing so badly in, in the majors. I'm embarrassed that he... He's not anywhere near the top of the leaderboard in the Saudi Arabian tour. But uh, I just wish it didn't end this way because he's, he's besmirching, he's staining what was just a sparkling resume and, and a popularity of who he was over the course of his career. I just don't understand why he's doing that. I do understand this, what just happened last night in Charlotte, North Carolina. This is cool. Yeah, so local boy does good here, right? From El Cajon, Jimmy Johnson Voted in last night to the NASCAR Hall of Fame in Charlotte. Uh, what a great driver. Now, granted, he's, he's gone through some kind of unique situations at the end of his career. He won seven points championships. He's won 84 races. Name a big race. Daytona, Talladega, Brickyard. Guys won at every location in NASCAR. Now, he ventured off in IndyCar, which was a really tough learning curve. But he got it dialed in his second year running for Chip Ganassi. And he actually led the Indy 500 that, that second year that he drove. But there was a comfort zone. He didn't, he didn't like it. The demands on his time, the learning curve, especially on road courses, mm-hmm. was really hard. And, and I'm, I'm not going to say it was too fast for him. But if you sit in a cockpit of an Indy car, that's a real different feel in terms of protection, even though you're protected in that cockpit, than when you're in a 3,500-pound NASCAR. Oh, yeah. Uh, so he, he came out of IndyCar after two years and had, I thought had made great strides on the super speedway, was struggling with roads, came back and went back into NASCAR under the Richard Petty banner uh, with his legacy motorsport team. They've struggled, but all, all new teams struggle along the way. But how cool is this? Jimmy Johnson, Donnie Allison, and Chad Canals, who is Jimmy Johnson's legendary crew chief forever and ever, all named on Wednesday night to the NASCAR Hall of Fame, and he's still got time to give. And I like Jimmy Johnson because he's been a great driver. He's been a great spokesman for the sport. He's done so much charity, whether it's in the East County in El Cajon, whether it's in North Carolina. He's done so much with the Jimmy Johnson Foundation. But cool. How cool is that? J.J. is going to the Hall of Fame. Yeah, well-deserved, right? And it's great to see the local kid do well. But wait, what an emotional year for him. I mean, he had the family tragedy. Now he's going into the Hall of Fame. Uh, But, uh, you know, 
you, you like to see good guys get in and get the recognition they deserve. And he gave so much to the sport, and he's just been a pioneer of the sports and a marketing whiz for the sport. Jimmy Johnson goes to the Hall of Fame. It's time. Does John have any friends that know what they're talking about? <laughs> it's time for Fans Forum, brought to you by Dixie Line. John, start, pick, where do you want to go? We'll try to buzz through as many as we can on our Thursday podcast. Yeah, gentlemen, start your engines. So uh, here's from Angel. He says, Padres are now playing like the Padres that expected to contend for the NL West. I think the Padres still have a shot at a wild card spot. They really do if they can dominate this weekend series. And the Dodgers are coming in here with pitching issues. And the Padres' bats have now been complemented, supplemented by the trade deadline acquisitions. Padres have to win. I mean, they're playing a four-game series. If they can go 2-1-2 two and, two and cut the deficit in the wildcard race and kind of cut the deficit from the first-place Dodgers, they've pushed themselves back into it. But if it becomes Dodger baseball dominating the Padres as they have over the last three years, Padres' season effectively could be over. I mean, if, if they lose three of the four, mm. if they get swept, although I don't think that's going to happen, I think the Padres' season effectively would be over because they're running out of games on, on the schedule. But, uh, you know, Dodgers have got huge pitching issues right now with Kershaw not back, with no Urias. Obviously, the kid Bobby Miller, who's getting a first start on Friday night, has kind of hit a bit of a wall all the other young kids are really scuffling. Now there's no Noah Syndergaard. Now, granted, they do get Yarborough back. Padres just, they need to come out smoking and and destroy the Dodger pitching staff and get into the Dodger bullpen early in the first game of the series to change the whole thing. So is it a rivalry? Yeah, emotionally, I guess it's a rivalry. I'll be intrigued to see whether the, the color of the night at Petco is brown and gold or whether there's a lot of blue in that stadium. So you think they're back in it? I think so. I mean, they're only one game under 500. I mean, they haven't been this close to 500 since May. But, I mean, it just sounds pathetic that we're talking about getting to 500. But they're only four out of the last wild card spot. So this is definitely very doable. And the bats have been heating up. I mean, granted, it was Colorado. But, boy, were they killing the ball out there. So that was terrific. It was Colorado. But it was Colorado. But, you know, the guys are hitting the ball hard. And you got to appreciate that. So Dodgers, shaky pitching, pottery bats heating up. All I'm saying is that there's a chance. There's a chance, I think, that the Padres could have a nice series here. I think they've got to at least split it. You know, they've got to be thinking three out of four and ideally sweep them. I just hate to bring up that stat. Padres' record against the Dodgers, they've won two series. They've lost 14 series, <sighs> dating back to 2020. On we go. From that, where do you want to go next? All right. So let's uh, let's go to a, a Dodger fan here. This is Emmanuel. He says, I feel like the Dodgers are banking on signing Otani. If they don't sign Otani, then maybe it's time to move on from Friedman. Well, they've, they've always been bold, but this is the first time they were not bold. But I tend to think the criticism, I mean, people in L.A., the L.A. Times columnists and the fans are just piling on. Look at all the division championships they've won. Look at all the times they've been in the World Series. That's because of the creative genius of Friedman. He did not want to overpay and suck up all the money that he might be able to use November 1st for Showtime Otani. Mm -hmm. He did not want to trade away the blue chip golden arms. Now, granted, they're not all ready to pitch at the major league level, but Bobby Miller's a hell of a talent. I am not giving up Bobby Miller to rent Verlander for a season and a half. And I'm not giving them up for half a season or two months for the Detroit pitcher, Rodriguez. So I understand why they did what they did. And they 
they kept money in the bank, so they'll have money to go get Otani. Although John thinks it's a bottomless pit at Dodger. You don't <laughs> well, care. they got not, a lot of money. Not your money. No. So that's that's where we are. Uh, let's give them credit, but they are dinged up right now. It's not the same team unless they come in hitting home runs, and they have hit a truckload of home runs all season long, despite the fact their pitching staff has really been ragtag of late. Well, you know, the Dodger fans are like the Laker fans. They just expect that they're going to get whoever player they want, you know, because they're the L.A. Dodgers or they're the L.A. Lakers. So that expectation is set. I know. I, I think Freeman's doing the right thing here. You know, just like Preller. Preller didn't go bananas at the trade deadline either. So I think they're just being savvy and they're thinking short term and long term at the same time. That's unbelievable. Uh, people on live stream, that's a Padre fan giving a vote of confidence to Dodger leadership. How well, about that? You just got to respect them. I mean, you know, they, they, they're doing the right thing. Hey, scoreboard doesn't lie. Okay, on we go. Pick another topic here. We've got another <laughs> contributor. Okay, this is from Manny. He says, ding dong, the Pac-12 is dead. Long live the Big Ten and the Big 12 and the Mountain West. Obviously, he thinks that Oregon and Washington and probably Cal and Stanford should go. Uh, it, it, uh, to me, the, the heritage... And, and the loyalty should have been front and center as it relates to the Pac-12. I'm so bothered I can't see straight about USC and UCLA. It's almost like I hope the Trojans and the Bruins get on the plane, go to the East Coast, and get their ass kicked for what they did to this conference. This conference, John, goes back to 1915. Do you know how many great teams and great players have come out of, quote, the Conference of Champions? Now, Granted, everything today is driven by dollars and TV contracts and shame on Larry Scott. Shame on the presidents and the CEOs of the conference for hiring Larry Scott as commissioner. God, they've let, let this thing fall apart under his leadership. And Klivkoff has walked, walked through the front door at the time where the TV industry is cratering at the same time. Uh, let, let's see what I would think within a week to 10 days, there's going to be a final proposal made. This is the TV deal. This is the best we can do. And I hope it's not 20 to 25 million if there's only nine teams left or whether Oregon and Washington stand pat and say, we'll pick up the flag, follow us, and let's see if we can make this work and get more people back into the equation. But if they take four, that, that means the corner schools are going to the Big 12, and that means Oregon State and Washington State probably wind up in the Mountain West. It'd be great for the Mountain West, but they'll still be small potatoes. They'll yeah. still be group of five. Don't confuse whatever the Mountain West winds up being with anything with neon lights wrapped around it. Has Bill Walton ever commented on UCLA leaving the Conference of Champions? I have not heard that. I think indirectly he said he was not happy about the outcome and the mm -hmm. way it was handled. Because he's such a homer for the conference. Sure. Conference of Champions. Yeah. Um, I know. It's easy. Social media. Just, where's Pac-12? <laughs> Kick them. Stomp on them. Yeah. Pour gasoline on to throw a match. Yeah. That's unfair. Conference has so much history, such a legacy. I hate to see it and the way it's ended. Okay, we move on. We move on. So here's Chris. He says, Angels, massive mistake not trading Otani. They are not going to go anywhere in the playoffs. Six teams in front of them in the wild card for the Halos to make it, and without Trout till September also. Yeah, they're running uphill. I, I, I buy a piece of that, but how could ownership trade that guy? It's like what happened to the Red Sox in 1920 when they gave away for money. They gave Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees. That owner never, ever lived it down. You did hear about the curse of the Red Sox. That sucker went from 1920 till they finally won a ring under Theo Epstein. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my, my gut feel is Artie Moreno could not 
own this team, show his face in Orange County if he traded Otani. I don't care what the hall of players was. You know, if you're going to condemn anybody, maybe you condemn uh, Moreno for a little bit for what he, what all the mistakes he's made. Maybe you condemn the system because the system is what will force their hand. But who's to say? I mean, Otani sees the addition of seven players in about a month span, the rental players, but they're trying to get there. They got a, a load of young pitching. Two years ago, they drafted 21 pitchers. Of the 21 draft picks, all of them were pitchers. Now, they've traded some of those pitchers away now. But Otani can see that. And maybe Otani is cut from a different cloth. Maybe he likes small market. Maybe he likes Southern California. You know, maybe he does not want to go to Seattle, even though they got a great history with the Ichiro Suzuki era. Maybe he doesn't want to be a Yankee or I don't think he's going to be a Met because I don't think the Mets can now convince him, come play for us, considering the Mets just gave away all their pitchers. I think the Mets invariably took themselves out of the Otani market for what they did. So even our executive producer, the barking <laughs> black Labrador retriever, agrees with us. Yeah. So um, is it over? I hope it's not over. There's still, you know, 50-plus games to play. Maybe something will change in Angel Stadium. But the injury thing has just kind of crushed the franchise. Yeah, and it's just they've been cursed for yeah. so long. And, uh, you know, it was just it was a surprise that Otani went there in the first place. He took a discount to go. Yeah, that really – I mean, because I thought, you know, the Padres had a shot at it. A.J. Preller was learning Japanese on his own. But still, Shohei Otani, you know – is a bit of a mystery to Americans because he speaks a different language, but you don't really hear a lot about who he is and what he really wants in his future. Very private person, very conservative person. But I'll tell you what, he's one of the few players in modern day baseball. I stop what I'm doing to make sure when he's coming up to the plate, I just want to see. Oh, yeah. What is it? And what he's accomplished as a human being on the mound and a DH and the demands on a player to grind through a 162-game schedule with the demands on him? Mm-hmm. What, a, what a phenomenal human being. If, he's, if he leaves, I say thank you for what he gave us in Southern California. And I don't care if he becomes a Dodger, Mariner, New York Yankee, or whomever. Say thank you because he came here at a discount price. And, geez, that's a Hall of Fame guy, I think. Yeah, that's all you can do is thank him. I mean, here's another Otani comment, and this one is from... Brett, and he says, I don't think Otani will sign with the Dodgers. And that, well, that's the odds on favorite, right? I think it has to be the favorite. Um, why, why would you say that, though, Brett? It's Dodger Stadium. It's a franchise with a history of players from the Pacific Rim. I mean, the Dodgers, outside of, of breaking the color barrier with Jackie Robinson and what the Dodgers did in Cuba— in the 1950s with, I think, the first one was young outfielder Sandy Amaros. Oh, yeah. What the Dodgers did in Mexico with Fernando Valenzuela, which is really hard to get players out of that country. And then what the Dodgers did in Japan, what they did in Korea, what they did in Taiwan. So how can you say they should not sign the guy? I mean, their reputation dealing with international players precedes the Dodger logo. So why would you say that they won't get them unless you're don't think they have a chance to get him. Why would you say that? Yeah. I, again, everyone is trying to get inside Otani's head, and no one really knows. But this is, you just see all this behind the curtain maneuvering to get it prepared for his free agency, you know, and the talk of the trades and everything else. This is going to be an incredible offseason. And there's going to be, what, three or four teams that are going to be all in, and you'd hate to be one of the ones that doesn't get them. Because who's your fallback? Guy? Who's your plan B? There's nobody. Well, you, you take your best shot, and it'll be up to him 
and his handlers as to location. And I, my own gut feel, just observing what he does and having taken part in a, an odd Zoom call with he and his interpreter, it's not about the money. It's about the environment and the unique situations in the community. It's wow. just not – I don't think it's about the money. The agents might make it about the money, but uh, oh, it's about the money. I think he's a hell of a guy. <laughs> I just I'm so intrigued by who he is and what what he has accomplished. Let's take a couple more on fans forum. All right. So let's uh, let's go here to Chris. And he says, Apple TV, Peacock TV, ESPN plus just a disaster. The greed of making us fans pay for streaming services. The landscape has changed. John, you're correct. Um, you know, your wife's going to be peeved if you cancel cable and she doesn't get CNN and Turner Classic movies. But I guess it's the new world that we have to live in that, you're, that it'll be, quote, a la carte. But you got to pay for everything that's on that menu. Oh, yeah. So that that's a big issue. I, and maybe I'm old school. Of course, I am. I got gray hair. <laughs> you know, maybe I'm old school. But I'm used to punching it up and watching college football on Saturday. And if it's a marquee game in the SEC, I know where it's going to be. And if it's if it was the Pac-10 or then the Pac-12, I, I knew where it was on ABC. Or if it was Saturday night football, that the pioneer the first time, Saturday night football on ESPN. It was just fascinating stuff. But it's it's everything has now been fractured, fragmented, and you got to pay for this, that, and the other. It's like. Go into your favorite restaurant of college football, mm-hmm. but for you to get the glass of water and then get the bottle of Coke and then to you know order the salad, you got to pay a significant price for everything that's on that menu. I, does it ever does it turn people off? Maybe it does. Maybe this is all going to come back to haunt college athletics and the way it's being structured and pactured right now. Well, they, you have to pay cable TV, and the cable TV prices have been going crazy for the mm-hmm. last couple of decades. So, to me, I think this whole streaming model is an opportunity to blow that that you know, cable monopoly thing up. And then we can pick and choose what we want. Now, hopefully we can pick and choose exactly what we want rather than having to buy 40 channels. That was the problem with cable. I mean, 80% of the channels I never taught, I never use. So um, is it greed? Well, you know, the, the, it's the systems, it's, it's, a, it's evolving, you know, and the revenue streams are just different. And frankly, I think for a lot of TV advertisers, they're finding that there are other ways they can reach their customers and old school TV ads aren't nearly as compelling. I got 500 channels on my TV outside of the Golden Retriever channel. I can't watch the rest of it. I don't care about the rest of right. it. Why am I paying for it? You are. You're paying for it. It's all It's all in there. Okay. So, on we go. A couple more questions here. Okay. So this is uh, from Greg, and he says, do you think the Chargers will ever come back to San Diego? No, not at all. I mean, there's money to be made in L.A., They've kind of got a sweetheart deal. I do think what's going to happen is the Chargers are going to be sold. I think Spanos, because of all the problems he's got with the bank loans that he's had to take to make this move, and the fact that obviously there's an inheritance tax, there's a big issue with the Spanos estate, that what they're going to have to pay based on the value of the franchise with the passing of the senior Spanos, I think we're going to wake up one day and he's going to wind up selling a team. But I don't think it's coming back here because there's no stadium here. And to get a Jeff Bezos or somebody else who still wants into the NFL to come, he'd have to pay to build the stadium, which is monstrously high. He'd have to pay whatever the significant fee is to buy the L.A. Chargers and then move them back. I I just 
I hated. I hated that they left. I hated that he screwed 55 years of fan loyalty here. I just can't forgive the Spanoses, uh, not not just for what they did to me and my broadcast team and then my radio station, but what they did to you and what they did to oh, all yeah. the fans. Yeah. I mean, 55 years of loyalty. And my argument, and I've said this at speaking engagements, I hope Justin Herbert goes 17-0 because I think he's a really good quarterback. And I hope Dean Spanos goes 0-17. I'm sorry. I, I need psychoanalytical <laughs> analysis, but that that's what I feel about the Chargers, the quarterback, the players versus the Chargers owner and what he did to our community. Am I right? Am I wrong? I'm sure you'll tell uh, me. Just, it's so tough being a San Diego sports fan. I mean, the Clippers left. If you go way back, the Rockets left. I mean, the Chargers, they're not coming back. The Chargers no. aren't. But I have hope with this Stan Cranky thing with the sports arena and maybe an NBA, an NHL. You know, there, there's some possibilities there. You're a fan. Fanatical. Okay. A little bit, little bit out of the loop, but that's okay. All right, a couple more here. Okay, let's let's uh, get one here from John. He says, "If I were Washington, Oregon, I wouldn't let the door hit me in the in the ass. Heck, the Big Ten would almost have an entire Pacific Coast division with SC, UCLA, Oregon, Cal, Stanford, and Washington." Well, I concur with you, but I guess the question is, if you're the Oregon Ducks or you're the Washington Huskies, you want to walk around the streets with blood on your hands because the history were right. You left for a big payday, and you destroyed a conference that had been in operation since 1915. Mm. Do you want that stapled to your resume? Period, exclamation point. I guess I'm, I'm old school. I'm big on loyalty. I'm big on history and legacy, and there's so much there. And you know, part of me says I understand it becomes big business, and, and John, you're correct. That'd be kind of a unique Western division if that happened. Uh, but at the end of the day, part of me also says, I hope USC and UCLA get killed going to the East Coast to play all these games in the upper Midwest. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. If, if those teams all became the Pacific Division of the Big Ten, then it's like we have the Pac-8 again. You know, it's like going back to what we used to be. Um, and, you know, maybe Utah doesn't come along for the ride, but... You know, it's just everything is shifting right now. And you're right. People on social media are just kicking the Pac-12. You know, they, 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 they've been called dead. You know, they, they figure it's over for these guys. I'm wondering if they're going to surprise us with the, with the TV deal. So the burning question is, what do you tell Oregon State and Washington State who played in this conference since the 1920s? Sucks mm-hmm. to be you? Yeah. Tough crap? That's not fair. Mm-hmm. And they've worked really hard. Washington State has really good football teams, and Oregon State has resurrected that football program probably three or four times. And you're going to say goodbye, see ya. And then imagine, yeah, imagine if that happened. So Washington, Oregon, Cal, Stanford, SC, UCLA, all in the Big Ten. Washington State, Oregon State go in the Mountain West. Arizona, the four corner schools, Arizona, Arizona State, Utah go to the Big Twelve. Where does that leave San Diego State? They're they're left on an island. They, they're they're screwed completely. No, they're they're in a Mountain West conference. It'll probably have a little bit bigger TV contract because you're adding the Beavers and you're adding the Cougars from the Pac-12. But it'll still be a Group of Five. Exactly. Good luck to you. Yeah. Hey, listen. We uh, hope you have enjoyed everything we've tried to do today on our Thursday podcast. Brought to you by Dixon Line Lumber and Home Center. Fix it, build it, and enjoy it. Have yourself a great sports weekend. Back in here on Monday for bonus coverage. Reminder, check my website, leehacksawhamilton.com. We invite you to share and tell all your friends 
what we're doing with the podcast, what we're doing uh, with my website. John, Padres Dodgers, have a great sports weekend. We'll see you come Monday. Looking forward to it, Lee. We'll have a lot to talk about on Monday. And thanks for being with us on Hacksaw's Headlines. Join us again for Hacksaw's Headlines on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And find the audio version on your favorite podcast app. For more content, go to LeeHacksawHamilton.com.